Today's scripture reading comes from Luke chapter 10, verses 38 through 42. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet, listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed, or indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. This is the word of God for the people of God. Won't you please join me in a word of prayer? Lord, we're thankful for all of the scriptures, but especially this passage today, which is so relevant, so applicable, so helpful to us as we try to live in these times in which you've called us to live. May we be open and receptive to the practical truth of your word that we might live it out faithfully in our lives. May your spirit do a work in us now. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said. In his very fascinating book titled Into Thin Air, writer and adventurer John Krakauer talks about the ill-fated expedition to the summit of Mount Everest in May of 1996. Krakauer himself was one of the fortunate ones who managed to live to tell the story. And he does tell the story about the personalities, the bad weather, and the poor decisions that caused several climbers, eight of them, to lose their lives on May 10th and 11th. One of the climbers who died in that expedition was the experienced and accomplished, and accomplished Japanese climber named Yasuko Namba. Yasuko was 47 years old, the oldest climber to ever attempt to summit Mount Everest at that time. She was also a Japanese woman, only the second Japanese woman to ever try to climb Mount Everest. So she was a bit of a celebrity. She also had a reputation of being a very aggressive climber. She liked to keep the pace going quickly. Sometimes she would take risks. She had reached the height of seven other very tall mountains in the world, and the only one left was the tallest, Mount Everest. And Yasuko was committed to conquering Everest. She was desperate to get to the top, no matter what. And that was actually her downfall. She pushed herself and the team very hard as they began their climb. She often wanted to be out in front and set the pace. And then finally, after several days of extreme climbing, Yasuko had gotten to the place where they were just hours away from making it to the summit of Mount Everest. They were within hours of achieving their dream, their goal, what they'd worked so hard for. The summit was only a few hours away, but there was a very narrow window because bad weather was coming in and they needed to get to the top and descend back down before the weather hit. As the expedition talked about their options, a group of them thought it would be wiser to actually descend down the mountain to a lower elevation and camp there until the storm passed and then try another shot at the summit. But Yasuko and a few others decided, no, they needed to press on and make it to the summit. They'd come too far. They were too close now. And so after discussing, even arguing a little bit, 
the expedition split up. Some of them going back down to a lower elevation, others ascending on to the summit. And the group that Yasuko led that went to the summit made it to the top of Mount Everest. Goal achieved. Bucket list checked. Yasuko was overjoyed. The oldest woman and only the second Japanese woman to ever make it to the summit of Mount Everest. Unfortunately, Yasuko only had a few hours to enjoy her celebrity and her fame. On the descent down from the summit, the storm blew in. Icy winds at 70 miles per hour and snow created whiteout conditions. The expedition got lost in the storm. Yasuko had pushed so hard to get to the top of the summit, she lacked the necessary strength and energy to make it back down in the midst of the storm. Finally, exhausted and fatigued, her oxygen tank now empty, Yasuko succumbed to the elements and died on the mountain. John Krakauer tells the story of Yasuko Namba as a cautionary tale, a tale of warning about those who get too obsessed over a goal. See, any experienced mountain climber will tell you that the goal of mountain climbing is not to make it to the summit. That's actually a secondary goal. It's a nice to have, but not a have to have. The number one goal in mountain climbing is, as you might guess, making it back down safely. Surviving the ordeal. If a climber gets too obsessed with making it to the summit, if they suffer from summit fever, as they call it, the climber will begin to make careless decisions and foolish risks and wind up dead on the mountain. Krakauer, in summarizing Yasuka's story, says this, misplaced priorities often lead to tragedy. Isn't that true? Misplaced priorities often lead to tragedy. And that's not just true in mountain climbing. That's true in life. In fact, the reality is, friends, history is full of cautionary tales about people who got too obsessed with the wrong goals, got their priorities out of whack, and invested too much time, too much effort, too much effort in lesser things, and missed out on greater things. Jesus had a word for people like this. He called them fools. Jesus once asked the question, what does it profit a person to gain the whole world, but lose their very soul in the process? Or as we might say today, what would it profit a person to make it to the top of the mountain, but then die on the mountain? See, life is a continual challenge, isn't it? A challenge to keep first things first. To be very clear about what's most important and make sure your life is focused on those things. And if you're a Christian, if you're a Christ follower, and if you believe what Jesus has to tell us, then you have to take seriously his call to seek first the kingdom of God, trusting that everything else will be added unto you as well. See, when you take Jesus seriously, you begin to see what first things really look like, what the most important things really are, and what the most important thing actually is. So welcome back to our series on Jesus. We have been spending months looking at the life and teachings of Jesus, gaining his wisdom, trying to apply His truth to our everyday lives. We started this back in June, and we're about to finish up here two more weeks, this week and next week. 
And we thought maybe the best way to finish this series is to have me this week and Pastor Mark Montgomery next week share our favorite passages related to the life of Jesus. The passage that we think best summarizes his teaching and his ministry. And so what I'm doing today is sharing with you one of my absolute favorite stories of Jesus. A story about the time when Jesus visited the home of two sisters, Mary and Martha. I believe that this story is so instructive to you and to me today. It really helps us see one of the central themes in Jesus' ministry. And so let's talk about that story for a second. Jesus and his disciples, as the scripture tells us today, was on his way to Jerusalem, the capital city. And uh, just before they get to Jerusalem, about two miles outside of Jerusalem, they come into the suburbs of Jerusalem, a little village called Bethany. And there in Bethany, two sisters, Mary and Martha, whom Jesus has known and is friends with, uh, they invite Jesus into their home. And Jesus and his disciples come in and they, they probably go into a, a large area, sort of like a living room or a family room, and they sit down to relax. And as Jesus is there, both Mary and Martha sit down for a few minutes and they begin to talk. And then, and then Jesus does what he often did. He, he starts preaching a little sermon. He starts teaching. And Martha thinks to himself, okay, good, while, while Jesus is doing his little sermon thing, I'm going to slip into the kitchen and I'm going to prepare him a meal he will never forget. And so she gets up and she goes to the kitchen and she fully expects her other sister Mary would, would follow her lead and get up and follow her into the kitchen and help with the meal. But, but Mary instead stays there at the feet of Jesus, hanging on every word he says. Martha gets a little frustrated that Mary's not helping her. And so she, I like to think maybe she clangs around a few pots and pans in the kitchen, making a little noise. Maybe Mary will hear that and then realize, right? But if Mary hears, she doesn't respond. She stays there at the feet of Jesus. And finally, Martha gets so frustrated that she's in there working all by herself in the kitchen. She, she goes back into the living room. I like to think hands on hips, giving her sister Mary kind of a little dirty look and she clears her throat. She interrupts Jesus. She says, Lord, I'm slaving away in the kitchen here trying to prepare a meal. Doesn't it bother you that my sister Mary just sits here at your feet? Tell her to come up and help me. And I love Jesus' response. In words that I believe are, are tender and caring, Jesus offers a, a mild rebuke. He's, he says, Martha, Martha, you are anxious, and worried, distracted by many things. But only a few things are really important. And right now, only one thing is most important. Mary has chosen what is best. And that won't be denied her. Now, you, you, you might think this mild rebuke from Jesus is a bit of a surprise. I mean, you think Mar Martha doesn't deserve that. I mean, here she is. She invited Jesus into her house, and she's trying to be a good hostess, and she just wants to prepare a special meal, and she needs a little help. And, and you wonder, if Martha's trying to do something nice, why isn't Jesus more sympathetic towards her? You might be tempted to think that way, but if you, if you were tempted to think that way, you'd be wrong, because... The point of the story is it's not about how to be a good hostess. It's not about how to prepare a meal with a good attitude. See, the point of this story is simply this. In life, you and I have moments where we have to make choices and decisions. And in those moments, it's not usually a choice between good and bad, is it? It's usually a choice between what's best among all that is good. 
See, in your life and in my life, on a daily basis, on an hourly basis, on a moment-by-moment basis, we often have to make choices, not among good versus bad, but among all the good things we, we have available to us, what will be best, what will be first, what will be most important in that moment. And what Jesus is saying, that it's always best to choose the best. See, Jesus was in the living room teaching the words of the Lord. Mary understood in that moment what was best. Not that preparing a meal wasn't a good thing to do. It was a good thing. But in that moment, it wasn't the best thing to do. It wasn't as important or as vital as sitting at the feet of Jesus. Hey, there'd be time for feasting later. Right now it was time to feast on the words of God. Martha wanted to know why Mary wasn't in the kitchen with her, but Jesus wanted to know why Martha wasn't in the living room with him. Because it all comes down to choices in the moment. And I'll tell you, friends, this is a challenge for us, especially in our modern day. Because it's difficult to make choices. And making choices among good things and choosing what is best can be painful. Have you noticed there's never enough time to do everything? Have you noticed that? Never never enough time to do everything, but guess what? There is enough time to do the best thing. Never enough time to do everything, but always enough time to do the best thing. And when you and I make a commitment to say yes to the best... It starts to put our life in order. So much of Jesus' earthly ministry was about helping people recognize what was most valuable, most important, to say yes to the best. He would tell a story about a man who would discover a pearl of great price and was willing to sell everything else he had in order to get that pearl. Choose the best. A man who found a treasure in a field and was willing to go and sell everything he had in order to get that treasure. Choose the best. Jesus would say, seek first the kingdom of God and its righteousness and everything else will be added unto you. Choose the best. Seek first things first. It's not that Jesus was anti-materialistic. It says that Jesus understood you and I will never understand how to properly use and experience life in this material world until our hearts are right with Him. And our souls are headed in the right direction. See, Jesus would say to you and me, if you want to summarize his earthly... Yes, he died on the cross for our sin and rose from the dead so we could have eternal life. But he wants us to have rich and full and meaningful lives here and now. And so if you want to summarize his ministry for our lives here and now, it would be simply this. Make sure you know what's most important. And keep the main thing the main thing. And that's hard to do, isn't it? Man. This comes down to choices. We make our choices, then our choices make us. See, your life is a reflection of your decisions, not your conditions. So is mine. See, we want to we say my life is a result of my conditions. No, no, no. Your life, my life, it's a result of our decisions, not our conditions. We make choices. Those choices impact our lives. And then... We have our conditions. And Jesus is saying, when you recognize that, you'll be very intentional about the choices you make, and you'll recognize you can't do everything. There's not enough time to do all the good things you could do, but there is enough time to do the best thing. I remember when I was 13 years old, I can still remember this. My parents trying to teach me how hard it is to make decisions. When I was 13, I wanted to do it all, right? 
13-year-old kid, just starting to experience a little independence. I had lots of things I wanted to do. Now, there were some things I had to do. Mom and Dad set certain priorities for me. For example, I had to go to school. Didn't particularly want to, but I had to. It was part of the deal. Had to go to school. Had to go to church. Sometimes I wanted to, sometimes I didn't want to, but that didn't matter. Had to go to church. Sunday morning, church. And then also youth group. I was in youth group at that time and had to go to youth group. Part of my, my parents believed it was important to model. If you're going to say, this is important, this is the first thing, you got to model it. And so they did. They modeled it. Made me go to church with them. And then I had a part-time job. I was delivering newspapers on my bicycle in the evenings. And also had a part-time job walking dogs for some neighbors in the neighborhood. So those were things that were non-negotiable in my house. Had to go to school, had to go to church, and had my jobs. But beyond that, I had lots of interests, things I wanted to do. Sports, scouts, karate, right? There's a girl I kind of liked who was in drama club. I wanted to do drama club. So I'd, I'd just say, can I do this? Can I do this? Can I do this? I'd bring home the permission and say, hey, will you sign me up for this? Can you sign me up for that? Hey, can you write a check for this? Can we do that? And I'll never forget it. My parents sit me down. And they said, look, you can do something, but not everything. And they said, here's what we want you to do. We want you to make a list of all the things you want to do. All those extracurricular activities. Now, you know, school, church, your job, those are, those are non-negotiables. But write everything else down and pick one. Not two, not three. Pick one. That was really hard to do. Really hard to do. I picked sports because that's the way I think I was wired and of all the things I could do, that was most interesting. And my parents did this for a couple of reasons. They did this because they wanted me to understand that you've got to make tough choices. That you can't do it all, so you've got to make choices. But they did it for another reason, too. They did it because they didn't want to spend every waking spare moment of their time hauling me around to every place, rushing me here to there, totally exhausted trying to keep up with their schedule and with mine. I know that sounds harsh to modern-day parents, but can I tell you? It's so very wise for us to set reasonable boundaries and establish margin in our lives for ourselves and our children to learn that you've got to make tough choices. You can't say yes to everything. You can't even say yes to most things. We talk today about people being overcommitted. No, they're not. People say, oh, I'm overcommitted, I'm overcommitted. What they mean is, I've said yes to so many things that I'm rushing around like a chicken with my head cut off, not being very good at anything, but superficially doing a lot of things and, and saying I can't be here because i got to be there, and then oh, I can't be over there because i got to be here. That's not overcommitment. You know what that is? That's undercommitment. That's being so superficially committed to so many things that you're not deeply committed to anything. That's why you have to make tough choices. Painful choices sometimes, because you can't do it all. You weren't meant to. And friends, this is, this is literally a matter, matter of life and death these days. It really is. Because the truth is, we are pushing ourselves and pushing our kids and pushing our families to the brink of exhaustion, trying to reach some imagined top of the mountain somewhere, sacrificing our health, our marriages, our souls, our emotions, to go, 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 do, 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 be, 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 get, get, get. I wonder how many marriages die 
on the mountain because mom and dad are so exhausted, rushing here and there, getting the kids everywhere, they don't have time for each other. I wonder how many people don't hear the still small voice of God trying to offer them encouragement and support and strength for the challenges and storms of life because they're just too busy to slow down and listen. I wonder for how many people God doesn't seem real because they don't take seriously His command to be still and know that I am God. See, too often we're in the kitchen. And Jesus wants us in the living room sometimes. Now, now, I, I know the, the truth is, uh, we struggle with this. We all do. Dallas Willard once uh, asked his spiritual mentor, uh, or excuse me, John Ortberg once asked his spiritual mentor, Dallas Willard, uh, how you could live a life that would guarantee peace and joy and right relationship with God and right relationship with others. And Dallas Willard didn't hesitate. He said, you want that kind of life? You want a life of peace and joy where you love God and love others? Here's what you got to do. He said, you've got to ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. Ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. Man, that's hard to do. But here's what's true. Speed and noise diminishes spiritual vitality. And so you have to be willing to make tough decisions. You gotta be willing to disappoint people. You gotta be willing to be misunderstood and misjudged by people who think that the busier you are, the more valuable you are. That the more exhausted you are, the more important you are. And the better parent you are. There is a time to be in the kitchen, but there's also a time to be at the feet of Jesus. And some of us are just naturally wired to be like Martha's. Nothing wrong with being a Martha. I'm a Martha too. We, some of us have this kind of go get them personality, right? Like y- Yasuko, we, we haven't seen a mountain yet we don't think we could climb. If we just pressed hard enough, went long enough, kept at it, right? And there is a time to push. There is a time to persevere. But sometimes isn't all the time, right? If you don't spend any time at Jesus' feet, if you don't let the Word Examine your heart and your attitude. If you don't, if you don't take the time to recalibrate and reprioritize, then you'll lose your way in the storms and you'll be pursuing the wrong things for the wrong reasons in the wrong ways. Frustrated, anxious, worried, exhausted, dead on a mountain. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world but lose his soul? You know, in the time we have left, I just want to share two very simple practices with you. I'd encourage you to make a part of your life to help you as I'm trying to help myself to to be focused on the most important things. Two very simple practices. Here's the first one. Make a priority list. Make a list of the, the things that are most important to you and why. Write a sense to it why they're most important. And here's the deal. Keep the list to a half dozen. That's the real challenge. But research indicates that the average person has enough bandwidth for about a half dozen really important things. These are the top priorities of our lives. So, So make a list, the top half dozen, and why these are important to me. Here are my top half dozen. God, my marriage, my children and my friends, my ministry, my health, and financial security. Those are the six. 
God, marriage, kids and friends, ministry, health, and financial stability. And I do my best to put those in order. I encourage you to try to put them in order from greater to lesser. It's not always easy to, to do, but to, to try to do that because you want to gain clarity so you can evaluate choices in those moments when you have to make choices. And if you're a Christian, let me just say, as your pastor, if you're a Christian, God should be number one on the list. Number one. When Jesus was asked, what's the, what's the guiding principle of life? He didn't hesitate. He said, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. He said, that's number one. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then he said, secondly, love your neighbor as yourself. But number one was love God first. God should be number one. Now, that doesn't mean we spend ten hours a day in Bible study and prayer. But it does mean we should be intentional about spending time at Jesus' feet on a regular and consistent basis for inspiration, for wisdom, for connection to Him. There are 168 hours in the week. 168 hours in a week. To find 15 to 20 minutes a day for devotional time with the Lord. To to find an hour on Sunday to gather with the people of God to worship. To to maybe find a couple hours during the week or every other week to gather with a small group where you can encourage one another. and Maybe a total of two to four, maybe five hours out of a 168-hour week. That doesn't seem like that much, does it, for, a, for something that's an important priority? Because here's what I've discovered, and I bet you've discovered it too. When I let God be number one in my life, that has a spillover effect to every other area of my life. I'm a better husband. I'm a better father. I'm a better friend. I, I, I find God's power helping me in, my, in the work that I'm called to do. I, I take better care of my, my health because I realize my body is a temple of the Holy Spirit and, and I manage finances according to God's wisdom because I know that's, that's the key to using resources wisely and well. I'll tell you, when I make God number one, everything else gets added unto me just as Jesus promised. But it requires choices. It requires intentionality. That's why you've got to be clear probably means if you're going to live by your priorities, it probably means you're not going to have five hours a day for television, which is the average that American adults watch TV per day. For kids, it's 9 to 13 hours a day. You're probably not going to have the average two hours per day that most American adults spend on social media. Not that TV is bad, not that social media is bad. You can find time for that, but you find time for that after the priorities have been taken care of. Right? It's, it's just saying, I'm going to choose what's best with clarity and intention. So write out your priorities. Now here's the second practice. Take 30 to 45 minutes each week and plan your upcoming week. Sunday's a good opportunity to do that. Sit down Sunday afternoon as part of your Sabbath and look at your priorities and then plan your week according to your priorities. What I do is I make appointments for my priorities. I make an appointment with God every day for my quiet time. I make an appointment on Sunday morning for worship. Of course, I have to do that. But my small group time with my small group, it's on my calendar. I I make an appointment with myself for exercise. I make an appointment with myself to pay the bills and go over the finances. I make a date night appointment with my wife every week. I make appointments on my calendar. I'd encourage you to do that because what you're doing is you're taking your priorities and you're making sure that your weekly schedule matches your priorities. 
I even make appointments for the work I have to do in ministry. I make appointments to prepare sermons. I make appointments to do visits. I make appointments uh, to go to meetings that I have to go to. I make appointments for, for everything, and I try to live by my calendar. I know what you're thinking. Man, Mark, making all those appointments, you lose the spontaneity in life. I just want to be spontaneous. Go with the flow. Do what I feel. Well, okay, but can I say something? And I hope I don't offend anybody here, but I'm going to take a chance. I don't mean to offend. But sometimes, spontaneity is really just a cover for a lack of self-discipline. Sometimes the desire to go with the flow is simply code language for, I don't want to get that clear about what's really important to me in my life, and then live according to that. I don't want to have to make the tough decisions. I want to just do what I feel in the moment rather than what I've committed to for a lifetime. And here's the good news. When you start living by your priorities and you have them in your calendar, there'll still be time to be spontaneous. Sometimes, you know, you can move things around in your calendar and and sometimes uh, you can find time to do something spontaneous. When you don't have an appointment, you can schedule things around your your appointments. Truth is, when Jesus visited Mary and Martha that day, it wasn't on their calendar. It's not like, like Mary had a calendar that said, Thursday afternoon, sit at Jesus' feet. You know, she didn't have that. But when Jesus showed up, because she was really clear about her priorities, she knew what to do when Jesus is in her living room. She understood in the moment how to say yes to the best, even when her sister was trying to coax her into the kitchen. See, friends, it's not until we get clear on our priorities that we can be intentional about our decisions. Let me say that again. You may want to write this down. It's not until we get clear on our priorities that we become intentional about our decisions and our choices. Because ultimately the question for you and for me is not, will I be busy? Hey, we're all busy. The question is, busy doing what? The question is not, will my calendar be full? Hey, we've all got full calendars. Here's the question. What will I allow to fill my calendar? And I tell you, friends, if we hear these words of Jesus today, He would say to us, only a few things are really important, and one thing is most important. You don't have time to do everything, but you do have time for the best things. So learn to say yes to the best. It will not be denied you. And God will bless you for it. Your spouse will thank you for it. Your friends will appreciate you for it. And your life will be an example instead of a warning.